Good morning, friends. Good to see you and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together. I'm going to pray for us again briefly, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to lift up our eyes and see beyond the governments and rulers of this world, to see into heaven above, that there is a throne in heaven, and on that throne is seated a king, and that king reigns forevermore, regardless of who is ruling in our country or the nations around the world. So help us and our hearts to hold fast to that king, to trust in him, and because of his gracious rule, help us to obey him in all of the commands that you've given us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you all to engage with me briefly in a little bit of hypothetical reality. So we're about to do a little imaginary story. I want you to imagine with me that the president of the United States was not Joe Biden, but instead was a man who became president because his parents had all the other presidential candidates killed. Then, after being elected as president, while he did enact some helpful policies and do some good, his term as president was marked by spectacular immorality. Imagine that this president seduced married women to commit adultery and engaged in numerous other forms of sexual immorality that would surprise even the most promiscuous of people. Not only that, but I want you to imagine that this president was exceedingly violent. So violent that stories circulated that he would secretly wander the streets of his country and murder innocent people at random. This president obviously claimed that those stories were fake news, but couldn't deny that he actually personally attempted to kill his own mother. And then after failing to do so, sent soldiers to do the job for him. But it gets worse. On top of all of this, during his term as president, a massive fire breaks out in the capital city of Washington, D.C., wiping out large swaths of the city. Then after the fires, he begins blaming the fire on innocent people. His actions then directly lead to their being captured and brutally tortured and killed. Imagine living under the rule of such a terrible president. And now ask yourself, how would God call me to respond to such a president? What behavior and heart posture would he instruct me as a Christian to have towards such a murderous and immoral president? The good news for us today is that we don't have to guess. Our text tells us exactly how we should respond to such a president if we had one. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at verses 13 to 17 in our time today. As always, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a little bit. And I want you to keep your Bible open in front of you throughout our time because we're going to be looking at the passage often in our time together. Uh, We're in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 to 17. But just setting the context for our passage, in chapter 1, Peter 
focused his attention on the glorious salvation that God has accomplished for his people. He chose us, he sanctified us, cleansed us, caused us to be born again, gave us a living hope, and guaranteed us a future inheritance. In short, he made us his very own people, all of us who have repented of sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And now in chapter two, Peter is focused on how we're to live in response to all that God has done. I want you to look at chapter two, verse 12 in your Bible real quick. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter calls us to to doing good deeds in light of all that God has done for us and says that God will use those good deeds to bring others to faith in Jesus. And now what he's doing in this next large section is telling us the various domains of life in which those good deeds can be done. And this week, we learn how we should respond to the governing authorities in power over us. Even murderous and immoral rulers like the one I described. I want you to follow along as I read 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. This is God's word. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. If you're taking notes, the main point of the passage is that we should be subject to the governing authorities for the sake of our public witness and because of our ultimate allegiance to God. Believers in Jesus Christ should be subject to the governing authorities for the sake of our public witness and because of our ultimate allegiance to God. We're just gonna break up that sentence into three points. Point one, we're gonna consider being subject to the governing authorities. Point two, for the sake of our public witness. And point three, because of our ultimate allegiance to God. So first, be subject to the governing authorities. Look again at verse 13. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The heart posture and outward behavior that God instructs Christians is for them to be subject to the governing authorities. Another common translation of that verb is to submit to the governing authorities, both of which mean to consciously place ourselves under the authority of governing officials. And being subject to the governing authorities includes both obedience on one hand and honor and respect on the other hand. It's it's not only an action obeying, 
but a posture of the heart that manifests itself in respectful obedience. Notice even the very last phrase of verse 17. Look all the way at the end. The very last thing Peter writes is, honor the emperor. Don't just obey your rulers, but show honor to them. Christians are to honor, respect, and obey the governing officials in whatever nations they find themselves living within. And notice, we're to be subject to governing officials at every level of government. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Peter tells his audience to be subject to the emperor, the supreme ruler over the Roman Empire, and to the local governors who carried out the emperor's will in all the various Roman provinces. And I don't think Peter is limiting our submission to just these two offices. The implication for this, his original audience was that they were to be subject to the highest and to the lowest, and to any and all officials in between. So in our country today, that would be like saying, be subject to federal authorities and local authorities. Be subject to the President of the United States and to governors of individual states. Submit to senators and to mayors, to congressmen and women, and to town councils, to the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, to the FBI and to your local police departments and and everyone in between. And listen, this isn't as easy as it sounds because in every country on earth, there are governing officials who do not use the authority God has given them well. And some are even openly corrupt and do outright evil things. And still, even when that is the case, Christians are called to be subject to the governing authorities. And we know that because the imaginary president I described in the introduction was based on a profile of the Roman emperor Nero, who was the emperor in power when Peter wrote his letter with these instructions in him. And if church history is correct, would be the emperor who later had Peter put to death crucifying him upside down. Frankly, Peter's command is astonishing, friends. The Roman government was known for its brutality. They sewed people into animal skins and then threw them to the lions in the Colosseum. They buried people alive. They crucified people they believed to be criminals. The governmental situation these first century believers found themselves in was infinitely worse than ours. And yet Peter tells these Christians, be subject to the governing authorities. Honor the emperor. Notice that Peter doesn't qualify by saying, be subject to the governing officials you voted for or the governing officials you respect or the governing officials you think are the right ones, or the governing officials from your particular political party. He simply says, be subject, show honor, obey them, and show respect to them while you're obeying them. Now, are there times when we disobey as Christians? Absolutely, right? We see this even in scripture. 
when governing officials call their citizens to directly disobey the revealed will of God, we should disobey them. Can any of the kids or teens here in the room name examples in scripture where God's people rightly disobey the governing officials over them? Raise your hand if you can think of one. I have three in mind, there may be more. Natan? Daniel? Yeah, we read it in the the passage earlier. The citizens of Babylon were to pray only to King Darius, and Daniel was like, sorry, I gotta disagree with you there, and I'm gonna continue praying to my Lord because to pray to a man would be to commit idolatry, so I'm not gonna do that, and I'm gonna take the consequences that come from that. So we got Daniel. Lyle, do you have an example? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right, Nebuchadnezzar was like, worship me. They were like, no, we won't. He was like, I'll throw you in the fire. They were like, okay. And then they got thrown in the fire. They took the consequences that came, but they weren't gonna commit idolatry because God said, bow down, worship to no one, worship no one but me. So we got Daniel, we got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Any others? I got two more in mind. Where are we at? Right in here, Terry. The Hebrew midwives, Pharaoh was like, kill all the infant sons. God's like, no, I created human life. You should not take life. So the Hebrew midwives said, no, we are going to disobey you. Anyone think of one in the New Testament? Book of Acts? Acts 5? You want me to name the verse? (laughs) Right? The high priests of Israel tell Peter and the apostles, stop preaching Jesus. They said, no, the only way for man to be saved is if we preach Jesus. So we are going to preach Jesus. We are not going to obey you in this. And we're gonna take whatever punishment comes our way because God has been very clear. Go into all nations preaching salvation in my name. So we're gonna go, and if the government wants to stand against us, then we're gonna disobey them, right? So there are examples in scripture. Right In all of these examples, the governing officials were directly opposing the revealed will of God, and so God's people were right to disobey them. But what I don't want to do is turn a passage that teaches us to be subject to the governing authorities into a sermon about all the various exceptions and ways that we can and should disobey, right? We need to sit with this reality And I think Americans in particular need to sit with this reality. Peter, living under Nero, by all accounts, one of the craziest emperors Rome has ever had, living within a brutal, violent, and often corrupt Roman system of government tells us that above anything else, our relationship to the government is to be marked by submission, honor, and deference. Yes, there are examples of God's people defying governing officials. But those examples, if you think about how big scripture is, right, there's a lot there. We came up with four or five examples in all of scripture. And the matters on which those individuals chose to defy the government were as serious and clear as there are in all of scripture. The destruction of human life the worship of human beings, and the prohibition of preaching the gospel. Like, yeah, it's clear. We are going to disobey you on these things. And we have to see that those precious few examples occur alongside numerous crystal 
clear commands in the New Testament to submit to the governing authorities, which if we're reading our Bibles well, means we should expect it to be rare that we are telling governing officials, no, I won't do that. Believers in Jesus Christ should be inclined to obey, to honor, and be subject to the governing authorities. Even in a democratic, constitutional republic like ours, we participate in the process of electing officials, and once the election is complete, we should be inclined to submit to those who are elected. So how are we doing with that? How are we as a congregation, how are, how are you as a believer doing with that? Let's unpack that question a little bit by considering the two categories of obedience and honor. How are you doing obeying the governing officials and the laws that they enact? Do you obey the tax code and file your taxes correctly? In home remodeling projects, are you obeying permitting laws and adhering to building codes? Look, every level, president, down to town councils, everywhere in between, Christians should be subject to the governing authorities. Do you drive the speed limit? I'm looking at myself here. Need to do a better job. Are you obeying laws about not driving while intoxicated? Are you being subject to emissions inspections and jury duty and driving tests? Georgi Vins, a Russian pastor who for many years before the fall of the Soviet communism suffered terribly alongside of many other Christians, uh, suffered a ton of persecution for his faith, yet he recounts that however severe their repression and mistreatment became, pastors and other Christians there determined to obey every law, just or unjust, with the exception of laws that would force to cease them to worship or to disobey God's word. Following Peter's admonition, they willingly suffered for doing what was right, but they didn't want to suffer for what is wrong or just being troublesome meddlers, right? Believers should be model citizens in their determination to obey the Lord by obeying the governing authorities he has put in place over them. But being subject isn't just about obeying them. It also includes honoring them. Peter says, honor the emperor. We are called to honor our president, our vice president, our executive cabinet, all the way down to our local mayor and town councils. In our current cultural moment, this is likely the most difficult aspect of obeying the call to be subject to the governing authorities, right? Christians should be set apart from the culture by our steadfast refusal to speak ill of those in power, whether publicly or privately. We should never call our president Sleepy Joe or Crooked Joe or Slow Joe. We can disagree with his policies, and I'm using those, those descriptions of him because that's what people call him. We should not be doing that. I'm not currently, I'm like, here are the examples. This is what people say about him. We should not be doing that, right? We can disagree with his policies. We can raise concerns about his personal morality insofar as it bears on his role as our president, but all of what we say about him should be seasoned with salt and give grace 
to those who hear. But it's not just Joe Biden. If Donald Trump is the next president, we're called to honor him. We're called to be subject to him. Remember who was ruling Rome when Peter wrote this letter. As bombastic and immoral as Donald Trump may be, if he is our president, God says honor him. Be subject to him. Christians should never wear t-shirts or have stickers on their car with things like, not my president. If he is president, he's your president. And you're called to be subject to him and honor him. You don't have to like your president, but you do have to honor your president. So in water cooler conversations around the office, do you jump in and pile on while coworkers are dumping on a particular governing official? At home, with your family, do you speak ill of those in authority around your kids, thus setting an example that they might one day follow in? Or do you disagree firmly but with the honor that God commands his people to show. The call for Christians is to be subject, to obey and to honor. For the kids and the teens, there's instruction here for you as well. I want you to look back with me at verse 13. Notice that Peter says to be subject to every human institution. Though he focuses specifically here on government, his instruction applies to how we should behave in all human institutions. I think the main human institution you're likely involved in is the educational institution. That is a human institution, meaning where you go to school. For some of you, that's at home, right? Which means mom and dad are not only mom and dad, but your principal, your vice principal, and your teacher. But whether you go to school at home or in, 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 in a school, the call for you is to be subject to those in authority over you. Kids, are you obeying your teachers? Are you obeying the administration of the school that you go to? Do you also show honor to your, to your teachers, not only by obeying what they do, but doing so with a posture of honor and respect, right? The call for all of us is to be subject to those in authority over us. So for the kids, how are you doing obeying the rules that your teachers and administration put in place? Are you honoring the guidelines that your teachers give for research projects? If they give you kind of rough outlines of what they're expecting, how much time you should spend on it, how many footnotes you should use, and things like that. Are you acting honestly in the classroom? Do you join in conversations where students are speaking poorly about a teacher or an employee at your school? Friends, you can start practicing now, kids and teens, those patterns will carry you into the rest of your life and, and help you if you're setting good patterns now to obey God later in life when things get harder. One pastor wrote that believers are to be model citizens, known as law-abiding, not rabble-rousing, obedient rather than rebellious, respectful of government rather than demeaning of it. We must speak against sin, against injustice, against immorality and ungodliness with fearless dedication but we must do it within the framework of civil law and with respect for the civil authorities. We are to be a godly society, doing good and living peaceably within an ungodly society, manifesting our transformed lives so that the saving power of God is seen clearly. 
And that brings us to point two. We're to be subject for the sake of our public witness. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God calls us to be subject to governing authorities. Why? Because this is his will. And through our honoring and obeying the governing authorities by doing good in this regard, we would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the same idea that Peter brought up back in verse 12 where he says people will speak against you as evildoers, but when they see your good deeds, over time, some of them will come to faith in Christ. And in this passage, the doing good is in reference to the distinct way we subject ourselves to the governing authorities. Our submission to the government is one major way that we witness to the world about our faith in God, and it has the power to silence people who otherwise speak evil against us. We have to ask the question, what's distinct or unique about our relationship to the government that, that tells others about our faith? How can being subject to the governing authorities witness to others about our faith in God? Well, one answer is because of how different this was from the way the culture around these New Testament believers related to the government. The Roman Empire in the first century, uh, the Roman Emperor, excuse me, in the first century was viewed as a god. And the citizens of Rome were to worship him, to literally claim him as their highest authority and give to him their ultimate allegiance. And to worship any other god above him was punishable by death. The command to be subject to the governing authorities was subversive in and of itself because the governing authorities expected people to worship them, right? This was the worship that Roman citizens regularly gave to them. So if a, a Roman emperor opened the Bible and saw Peter say, be subject to the governing authorities, he would have been like, what are you talking about? You're supposed to say worship the governing authorities. Worship the emperor. Don't just honor him. The command was subversive in and of itself. And there's a striking similarity, I think, to what we're experiencing today in America. As God has been pushed out of the public square, politics and political parties have taken on God-like roles. They've become the source of ultimate identity for many, as well as the source of ultimate authority to whom many citizens give their ultimate allegiance. The godlike role that politics and political parties have assumed is seen in the increasingly hostile way members of different political parties engage with one another in our country. It's also seen in the many ways members of different political parties respond when the other party comes to power, right? There is weeping and gnashing of teeth and loss of hope and despondency and existential angst when the other party wins because people have wrongly put their hope in politics and politicians and political parties. And in this, Christians can show the world a better way. We can honor and obey the governing authorities whether they're the candidate we voted for or not because we know that over all governing authorities, stands the God we ultimately serve and worship. Honestly, 
election time in America is quickly becoming one of the easiest opportunities to witness to our faith that exists in American life. As American politics becomes more idolatrous, more and more people will experience existential angst every two years. I mean, even now, it's like the battle for the house. It's like, wait a second. It used to just be like the battle for the presidency. Now it's like, you know, alarm bells going off on news stations. How many seats are left in the house? How many seats are left? Like, are we ever going to stop? They're just creeping more and more into all of, human, uh, all of American life. Existential angst every two years, every four years, as people wait to see whether their party wins power. And we have the opportunity to tell family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers who are putting their hope in a political party, let me tell you, let me tell you about a perfect king who is reigning right now and whose reign will never end, who is worthy of your trust, your hope, and your ultimate allegiance. If you put your hope in him, you won't have to be on a roller coaster of putting your hope in political parties or politicians. The question for you is, is that how you, as a believer, are responding to election season? What does your response to election season and your response to who wins the elections say about your ultimate allegiance and your true hope? Is how you respond distinct or different from the world around us? Right, we need to remember who we are, right? I want you to look back with me at verse 11 of chapter two. We are sojourners and exiles. This nation, it, it is our home in one sense. It's not our home in an ultimate sense. There is a greater kingdom that we look forward to, a, a heavenly city. We are citizens of another kingdom and serve a greater king. The world is not our home, and its rulers aren't our ultimate hope. Now, that is not to say, I want you to hear me very clearly, that you can't be disappointed by the outcome of elections. Elections can have real negative consequences. They absolutely can but how do you handle that disappointment if your party lost? Or that joy if your party won? Do the people around you see you doing good by you not putting your hope in political parties and politicians as so many around us are? But doing good in such a way that silences those who speak evil against us isn't just limited to our relationship to the governing authorities either. Peter's talking about doing good in all of life motivated as we are by God's grace and obedient as we are to God's commands. We, we seek to live godly and upright lives doing so much good that people who speak evil against us are eventually forced into silence when confronted by the sheer amount of good that believers do. Christians should be the very best citizens of whatever country they're living in, right? People may hate what we believe, but they shouldn't be able to deny the good that we do. We should be the best citizens in our nation, in our state, in our county, and in our local communities. We do good, as verse 17 says, at the very beginning of verse 17, by showing honor to everyone, by treating the great and the small, the powerful and the weak, Democrats and Republicans, male or female, black or white, Asian or Indian, we show honor to all because all are made in the image of God. 
and we seek to do good by being salt and light in the communities in which we live. We can do that in so many different ways, friends. We can serve on school boards. We can serve on town councils. We can run for local office. We can work in federal government. We can work in a homeless shelter. We can volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center. We can get involved in fostering and adoption. We can coach local sports teams. The list goes on and on of potential ways to do good. The question I have for you is how can you, with the time and resources God has given you, plot and strategize to be more involved in your local communities and in the lives of your neighbors, doing so much good that those who previously spoke evil about you are silenced by the good they see you doing. We have to think about this. Peter is assuming that the good that he's speaking about here is not a private good. He's not talking about a personal piety. He certainly wants us to be privately pious individuals who worship the Lord in our hearts, who turn to his word in our homes, who talk about the Lord as we go about our days. He's also expecting us to move outward into the communities around us and to do good as we're able. And that good will testify to our ultimate allegiance to God. And that brings me to my final point. We're to be subject to the governing authorities for the sake of our public witness and point three, because of our ultimate allegiance to God. Recall again what Peter says in verse 11 of chapter two. We are sojourners and exiles here. America, is not our ultimate home. For the Christian, no nation on earth claims our ultimate allegiance because, as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our king, and no human authority is above him. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We, we submit to human authority because a higher authority, Jesus Christ, tells us to submit for his glory. Not only that, but we see that throughout the passage that our ultimate allegiance is to God and not to governing authorities. Look at verse 15. We subject ourselves to governing authorities because God commands it. This is the will of God. Verse 16. God has set us free from sin to be his servants. Verse 17, though we honor the emperor, we fear God. We stand in reverent awe of God, worshiping him alone. In fact, it's our ultimate allegiance to God that motivates our being subject to the governing authorities. Look again at verse 16. Peter says, live as people who are free. In the original Greek, the word live, the verb live, actually isn't there. Instead, the, word, instead, the words as people who are free modifies the main verb to be subject. Be subject to the governing authorities as people who are free. And why are we free? Keep reading verse 16. Because we are servants of God. We've been set free to serve and to serve God. And the one way we serve God by freely, is by freely subjecting ourselves 
to earthly rulers as a means of doing good so that other people would come to give their ultimate allegiance to God. And I want to dwell on that for a moment. Notice what Peter is saying. Christians are free. We have been set free from sin by God. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. But when Christ sets us free from sin, he doesn't do it so that we would use our newfound freedom to sin and do evil, but instead to live as his servants. Christians are free servants. A bit of a paradox. If you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I want to underscore this for you. According to the Bible, everyone on earth is a servant of someone or something. But if we're serving someone or something that isn't God, the Bible says we're actually in bondage. You see, when Adam and Eve thought they were exercising freedom by turning from God and doing what he told them not to do, they were actually becoming slaves, slaves to sin. When they turned from God, they turned to slavery. They became slaves and servants of sin and their sinful passions, and all mankind has been born into that same bondage to sin. That's why human beings do the evil things that we do, whether we're talking about large-scale atrocities that we would all recognize as evil or the private sinful things that reside in our heart, like lying, lust, anger, jealousy, malice, bitterness, and so on. And that's also why there's no perfect government on earth. Because governments are full of people who are enslaved to sin. So while they're supposed to praise those who do good and punish those who do evil, like verse 14 says, they often fail and sometimes in horribly evil ways. That's why no human politician and no human government deserves your ultimate allegiance. None of them can save you from the bondage to sin that you and I need to be rescued from. Our sins against God have brought us under his judgment. And the only hope of being freed from this slavery to sin is if God himself would set us free. And the good news for you today is that he offers you that freedom through his son, our Lord, King Jesus, who though he was God in the flesh, exercised his freedom as God by subjecting himself to unjust human authorities. Think about how Jesus subjected himself to the unjust rulers of Israel. Right, when they came to arrest him in Gethsemane, what did Peter do? Peter, who wrote us this letter, be subject and honor the emperor, pulled out a sword and started fighting the soldiers. Jesus is like, oh, put your sword away, man. Right, this is not what I'm doing here. Do you not know that I can call on my father and he will at once send me 12 legions of angels? I am subjecting myself to the governing authorities because this is the will of my father. Or how he subjected himself to unjust Pilate. Peter said, uh, Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What did Jesus say? You have no authority if it weren't given to you by my father in heaven. And why did Jesus 
subject himself to unjust rulers because it was God's will and by doing good, he put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He did good by dying on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. The true king, not telling his citizens to go die in a war for him, but going ahead of his very own enemies and dying so that they could become his sons, his brothers in the faith, his sisters in the faith. The true king laying down his life on the cross. And as he hung there, the very soldiers who mocked him and spit on him and ignorantly spoke evil against him, silenced. One of them even confessed, truly, this man was the son of God. And that soldier was the first of many who after speaking evil against Jesus was put to silence because of the good that Jesus did in subjecting himself to governing authorities. In his subjection to them, and his death on the cross, he was accomplishing God's will and setting free those who were in bondage to sin. And he offers you that freedom today if you would turn from your sin and trust in him. But that freedom isn't to be used for evil, but instead to live as servants, not of sin, but of God. And we use that freedom now to follow in the steps of our Savior by subjecting ourselves to the governing authorities, even unjust ones, knowing that as we do good, God will put to silence some of those who speak evil against us and even bring some of them to faith. And we take comfort in the midst of this fallen world where so many injustices are committed by those entrusted to rule we take comfort in the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. This world is not our home. And one day, our Lord, our Savior, our King will come to take us to his kingdom where we will no longer be subject to fallen human government, but to our perfectly righteous and perfectly just King forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this command is hard. We still battle against the passions of the flesh and sometimes the passions of the flesh make us want to lash out in anger at the governing authorities around us. Sometimes that anger is even righteous at some of the evil things that have been done by our government and our governing officials and those entrusted to protect and serve. We lament and mourn those things. We pray for unjust rulers and unjust authorities that they would have their eyes opened by you to see that you will hold them accountable for everything they've ever done and for all the ways they've used their authority. Please cause them to turn from sin and trust in you. And please help us as your people to be subject to those in authority over us, to obey and honor them, to do so much good that the world around us would be put to silence and even come to faith in you and that we in the week to come would continue to give to you our ultimate allegiance. And we pray this in your name, amen.